about remembering who we are. That's the type of stuff we need to remind ourselves uh, when we don't feel like that's who we are, when we don't feel like we're overcomers, when we don't feel like God loves us, when we don't feel like we're seated in heavenly places because, well, I lost my temper again today, or, well, I fell back into that bad habit again today. Well, there I go criticizing and complaining again. We remind ourselves of who we are and what our calling is. In fact, that's the series that we've been in, um, Trust the Story, and today we're going to be in part 39 of Trust the Story, and we've been using the book by Frank Viola called The Untold Story, which really just helps us see the Bible as one complete narrative. A lot of times we will take certain parts of the Bible and we will pull them out to use them however we want to use them. Maybe we want something or maybe we want to show someone else that we're right and they're wrong. And so we pull a scripture out and we throw it at people without even recognizing maybe it fits differently because of the context that it's in. So one of the things that we've been trying to do over this last year is look at that story that God has been telling, reminding us of who we are, reminding us that he hasn't changed his story because of 2020. All that he has has been written before the foundation of the earth. So God didn't have to adjust in 2020. We had to adjust. But I think the reason that we had to adjust so much is because we tend to like to do things a certain way. We tend to like to do things a cultural way or a traditional way. And maybe we're not leaning in to hear the things that God is wanting us to do or the things that maybe he's calling us or putting in our hearts to do. And so one of the things in Restoration Church that we've been trying to do is to think outside the box. And the reason that we're in this room today is because we felt like the Lord put it in our heart to move from the current piece of property we have. And I'm pleased to tell you today that I hold in my hand the, the mortgage on our old building. And as of today, we are debt-free. Debt-free. So... I don't know if we're going to burn it. Many of you maybe remember the burning that we had at the other building and the mark on the carpet. And so um, I don't know exactly what we'll do with this yet, but, but we'll do something and it'll be exciting in the weeks ahead. But um, for those of you that have been giving in the debt payoff offering, we all of the funds, all of the proceeds that we didn't use to pay off the debt uh, are going into an account and it's going to be our building fund. So we have no idea what piece of property we're going to purchase or whether we'll purchase, um, you know, maybe we'll rent property. Uh, I, I am enjoying not being tied down right now to any one location or place. We are very mobile right now. Um, no matter what happens in our society, we can adjust and adapt. We can shift uh, really quick. And so at least for a little while, uh, we're going to enjoy our mobile status, uh, but we're open to whatever the Lord has for us. So we will start looking at pieces of property and how we can use them. So if you want to give towards the building fund instead of the debt payoff, um, that offering will still take place and all of that money is going to be set aside for future expansions, for whatever we purchase. And it may look different than anything we've ever done before. Um, we, we don't want a building that we just use on Sunday morning or that we just use for worship services. We want something that's going to help us meet a need in this community. Uh, we believe in being a church that has an impact on our community, um, not just a spiritual impact, but a physical benefit impact. 
um, we want the community to notice if we disappear. And so we want to help however we can help or serve however we can serve. And so we'd love our building uh, to match that. And so um, excited about that. We um, also, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be starting a new series um, called Redefine. And there are copies of this book available today. Uh, we won't get into this book until February, uh, but this will be our new series. And Redefine is a book that was written by Arden Bevere. So for those of you that have been in Restoration Church for quite a while, you know the name Bevere, um, but Arden is new. Arden is the youngest Bevere son, and he's written a book that really goes after the labels that society has placed on us or that um, maybe our parents have placed on us or sometimes the expectations and the labels we place on ourselves. And he reminds us of who we are as sons and daughters of God and who we are not. So every week we're going to take one of those labels, uh, maybe lazy, and remind us that we are not lazy, that we are um, overcomers, diligent, faithful in Christ Jesus, uh, addicted. We're not addicted. We've been set free. And so we're going to talk about the freedoms that we have in Christ, the, the identity that we have in Christ, and that'll start in February and it'll last for a couple months, but those books are available today. So if you want to take one and get into it, uh, you sure can. But don't forget, we're finishing Trust the Story. So today we've come to the book of Jude. And uh, if you read the, the corresponding pages from the Untold Story, um, Frank Viola lists the type of false teachers that Jude is kind of countering in this letter. And Jude, if you don't know uh, your Bible well, you might flip past it because Jude is just a short 24 verses long. Um, it's a very short letter. And uh, we'll talk more about it as we dive into it. But Jude is a whole lot like 2 Peter. And I've entitled the message today, Contend for the Faith. Contend for the Faith. If you remember the letter from 2 Peter, it launched us into this remember who you are. Um, contending for the faith is not so much about, um, the, in the Christian circles, we like to talk about the war that's on the church. There's a war against the church. There's a war against the faith and against the gospel. Um, that's not what Jude is talking about. When we contend for the faith, yes, we need to be aware of the spiritual forces that are trying to um, attack our faith. But what we need to do is get grounded in our identity in Christ. It's not trying to change everyone else's opinion around us or trying to point out how everyone around us is wrong. It's making sure that we're grounded in who we are and that we're living it out. Uh, one of the things that Jude's going to tell us over and over again is, is it's not so much what our doctrine is, it's what our practice is. And so as we look at the book of Jude, you might notice a lot of similarities between that and 2 Peter, but we're going to walk through um, the book of Jude, not all 25 verses, because we, you know, we, I know that you don't want to be here all day, and so uh, I'll still try to get you out on time. But we're going to start, excuse me, with verse 1. Jude introduces himself to us, to those he's writing to, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, if you remember the word brother that we translate in our scripture, in the Greek language, that word doesn't necessarily have to mean brother or sister the way we define it. Um, that term is just literally a close relative. So if you remember when we studied the book of James, 
there are a lot of scholars that think James was the brother of Jesus, and then that James became one of the leaders in the early church. Um, I tend to disagree with that because even though James, it says that James was a brother of Jesus, again, there was one of the apostles named James who was a close relative of Jesus. So one of the 12 apostles that Jesus called and lived with him for three years was a close relative, close enough to be known by that word. So as we've translated it brother, it doesn't necessarily have to mean sibling the way that we define it. Um, and I don't know that Jesus would have wanted, or even the apostles themselves, would have called someone who was a new believer and set them up as a leader in the church. All of the other leaders in the church, Peter, James, John, um, Paul, are people that had been with Jesus or specifically received a call from Jesus. So I tend to think that this James and now this Jude are not necessarily brothers, siblings of Jesus, but are, um, Jude would be a brother of James the Apostle. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. You can probably believe either one, and I don't think your salvation is at stake, but um, that's just my opinion, and I'm the one talking, so I get to share it. Isn't that great? Um, and so um, Jude is writing to a Jewish audience. And we know it's a Jewish audience because of the non-Bible writings that he refers to. This book, more than any other book of the Bible, refers to books that aren't in our Bible. And uh, we'll talk about that later. So look at this. He says, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, or kept in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. The moment we put faith in Christ, this is who we become, called loved and kept. Um, that needs to um, almost be tattooed on our heads, if you will. That needs to be something we put everywhere, reminding ourselves daily, we're called. We have a purpose. You have not just been saved so that one day you'll arrive at heaven. God has put a calling on your life as a son or daughter to represent him everywhere you go. We are called. We are loved. The Bible tells us that we have to remember his love because his love keeps us rooted and his love keeps us grounded. On the days where you feel like you're not measuring up, it's his love that keeps us rooted and his love that keeps us grounded. And then the reminder that he's actually going to end this letter with is we are kept in Jesus Christ. The perseverance, the sustaining, the power that we need does not come from our own willpower. It comes from Christ. It comes from what he did for us. And over and over, this is going to be something we reference in this short letter is that it's from start to finish that Jesus has paid our price, that he is our salvation. And so remember who you are, called, loved, and kept. And right away in verse 2, he goes into another trio. You're going to find that James or Jude loves the number three. Three examples, three words, over and over, he's using that number. And so verse 2, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Remember, Paul used this greeting in 2 Timothy. Peter used this greeting in his letters that we've talked about. And maybe the words are a little bit different, but this idea of mercy, what we receive from God, we've already read about this. What you deserve from God, what I deserve from God is punishment. We've broken his laws. We deserve punishment. But what we got from him was mercy, the withholding of that punishment. And he did it from the foundation of the earth. 
It's not like he had to, you know, weigh us in the balance and decide whether or not we were worth it. Even before he created us, he determined we were worth it. And he's given us mercy. He doesn't leave us to try to fulfill all of his righteous demands on our own. Christ has fulfilled them on our behalf. And so we get mercy in abundance, not just a little bit of mercy, not just, you know, barely enough to squeak by. Overwhelming mercy is what we get from him. Overwhelming peace. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to feel peaceful. But we have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. So when I put my faith in what Christ has done for me, when I surrender my life to him, I have peace with God. And when I fail, when I falter, I don't lose my peace with God. I still have peace with God. Now, I still need to come back and repent. I still need to come back and confess my sin. I can't just say, well, you know, I'm Irish. I have a temper or I'm German. I'm kind of stubborn. No, no, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I've been recreated as a son or daughter. So I've acted out of my character, and so I'm going to confess that. But I have not lost peace with God in the meantime. Peace with God is determined by what Christ has done for us. So even when we feel anxious, we have peace, overwhelming peace. Sometimes our anxiety is self-produced, though. Sometimes our anxiety is a result of us setting our minds on the things of earth on our expectations of ourselves or maybe our expectations on others. We get frustrated that things aren't going the way we want them to. So we allow our peace to be taken, but make sure we know we have overwhelming peace with God. And then love, we've talked about that so much today, that love is that overwhelming thing that God has. And it's, it's not an emotion, it's an action, okay? So you don't have to feel loved by God the fact that Christ died on your behalf demonstrates God's love. And so if Jesus is never uncrucified, God has never stopped loving us. Now, don't forget, as we sang today, he loves us far too much to leave us as we are. He accepts us as we are. He gives us his love just as we are, but he's not going to leave us in that state because in that state where we were, were sinners, where we've acted in rebellion to God, we actually were slaves to that. I don't know what your vice is, whether it's an addiction, whether it's an addiction to a substance, an addiction to pornography, whether it's anger, whether it's your, your temper, outburst of anger, maybe it's complaining or criticizing. We've all got different ones that we, we tend to lean into because of our, our fleshly desires and makeup. And so when we come to Christ, he demonstrates his love for us, and he frees us from that sinful nature. Because I don't know about you, I can't stop doing those things by myself. The harder I try, the, the harder it becomes. And in fact, the more I focus on trying to stop a certain behavior, the more I actually do that behavior. But when I root myself and ground myself in the love of God, in the calling of God, in the mercy of God, it frees me up to pursue who I've cre been created to be and not who I was. And so it sets us free from that. Then James goes on. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I love those words from, the, from Jude. He wants to write to them. He's so eager to talk about salvation. Let's ask right from the beginning, how many of us are eager to talk about our salvation? 
How often when we meet up with each other, do we talk about, man, Christ has set me free. Something I've read in his word, something he's doing in my life right now. Uh, man, overwhelmed by his grace. Or do we default to other things? Talk about sports. Talk about the weather. Talk about the things in our community that we don't like. Talk about the, the latest scandal or talk about the latest gossip. The latest, hey, did you hear like so-and-so, that pastor's at large church? Yeah, moral failure. Oh, we tend to gravitate towards that stuff as human beings, the negative side. And so it's not long, sometimes in a conversation, that that conversation goes south in a hurry. Wives, we, you, you know, you get together and, yeah, my husband, oh, yeah, he throws his socks everywhere. Just such a, such a lazy bum, man. He comes home from work and he just takes his shoes off, leaves stuff everywhere. I mean, I've been working all day and I got to come home and cook stuff. See how easy that is to slip right into that? That conversation isn't for you and your girlfriends. That's a real conversation to have with your spouse and say, hey, man, I am frustrated. I'm so tired. I, I feel like I have to do, I feel like I have to do all the work around it. See, I've taken ownership of that. I've said I feel a certain way. And husbands, we're just as guilty. So don't think that I'm picking on your, your wife today. It's easy for us to get around the guys. And yeah, the old ball and chain. Oh, this is not who we are. That negative. James is, or Jude is like, hey, I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about the good things that God is doing. Our community, our communal salvation, that salvation that we share, okay? The American individual lifestyle, we've talked about this over and over and trust the story. We like to take, to take the gospel and make it all about me and myself and I, or my family, or what I need. But James, or Jude, I'm going to say James all the time. Just slide the word Jude in there every time I say James, and it'll be okay. Jude talks about this shared faith that we have. And we need to be reminded right from the outset of this letter, this is about community. This is about us. This is about the body of Christ. So then James, or Jude goes on. Man, I did prophesy over myself I was going to keep saying it, so. I rebuke that thought right now. I'm going to keep saying Jude. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. See, there is a time to have a conversation about the elephant in the room. Okay? Jude recognizes that they're at a, a tipping point. Although he would like to talk about salvation, although he would like to talk about all of the good things that God has done for us, a conversation needs to be had. Because there are some false teachers that he's going to go on to say that have, have slipped into the church. And he needs to address this situation. He needs to teach them how to contend for the faith. So he says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There's that entrusting, that calling, that responsibility again. And I just want to give you a little bit of a spoiler alert. If you don't want to know this right now, you can plug your ears for a second. Contend for the faith does not mean correct all the people that are wrong. I want to let that sink in for a moment. Because sometimes when we think contend for the faith, what we're thinking of right now is the liberal culture around us. that We need to fight against that culture. Contend for the faith, as I'm going to show you from Jude, is not about correcting everybody else. 
It's making sure that we're rooted and grounded in our identity and we're living that out. Now, it doesn't mean we never have to correct something. It doesn't mean we never have to speak against something. But I think in the church, we've gotten so overwhelmed by what's happening around us that almost everything out of our mouth, almost every post on our social media is trying to correct all of the false teaching that's out there. Jude's never going to tell us to correct it. He's going to tell us to live what is true, what is pure, what is right. And through our lifestyle, we're actually going to correct it. Because here's the thing. If we, spend all, if we spend our time and energy trying to correct everything that's false in our world right now, there won't be time for anything else. And it's going to mutate all the time. False teachers are going to pop up everywhere. I mean, it's almost like terrorists. Because, you know, I don't know if you've heard that phrase. If we, just, if we kill one terrorist, another one's just going to rise up and take his place. That doesn't mean we, try to, we just never you know, go after terrorists. But it does show us the futility of trying to stop it all. These false teachers, if we try to go after them one at a time, that's going to be all of our energy and all of our time. And so Jude's going to give us some more advice as we go later on. Verse 4, certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. So he's going to start talking to us about these false teachers and who they are. But the first thing I want you to notice is God is fully aware and he has always been aware that false teachers are going to come into the church. So you and I don't have to run around like chickens with our heads cut off, um, overreacting to false teachers. God must have a plan for this because all long time ago in the Old Testament, from the very beginning, this was prophesied that this was going to happen. And so God has a plan. So there should be soberness, because remember, Jude's like, I wanted to write to you about this, but we got to talk about this. So it's a sober moment, but we don't have to overreact to the moment. And so that's going to be something that keeps coming back and forth. Now, these false teachers secretly slip into the church. The Bible refers to false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. What that means is wolves look like sheep, okay? The Bible refers to all of us who put faith in Christ as sheep. So wolves, false teachers, are going to look like sheep. They're going to have some good characteristics. They're going to be people that show up every Sunday. They're going to be people that show up early to help us bring stuff in. They're going to, you know, they're going to do things that make, that give the appearance that they've surrendered their lives, but the fruit of their life is going to be different. It's going to be selfish. It's going to be self-seeking. It's going to be about self-gratification. And over and over, this is what he's going to talk about. They're going to have a level of humility or what looks like humility. They're going to flatter people. They're going to look like, oh, I, I, I'm just here to serve. I, I don't need any thanks. They're going to say all the right phrases, but be careful by watching the fruit of their life. Now, the one thing we don't want to become is cynical, where we watch every person and we're like, mm, I see one, I see that one bit of fruit. It's not that they're not bearing some fruit. They're not bearing any fruit. Okay, the fruit of their life is always selfish, self-seeking, and it's all about self-gratification. So be careful that we don't label someone a false teacher just because they have a vice that they're working out. 
if the general fruit of their life is good, it proves the Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. So these, Jude goes on to say, are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. So these false teachers, he doesn't really tell us what they're teaching. But basically, whatever they're teaching, their lifestyle is showing it doesn't matter how you live. And the term Gnosticism, we've talked about Gnosticism back when we studied Colossians and in some of the other books of the Bible. What Gnosticism is, is it's a teaching that the human body and the soul, our mind, our emotions, and our will are separate, which is true, but they're separate in the kingdom, meaning as long as your doctrine is right, as long as your thinking is right, what you do with your body, it don't matter. So in other words, if you believe that God forgives all your sins, you can do whatever you want with your body. You can yell at people. You can have outbursts of anger because that's just your flesh. That's just your body. And so as long as your, your mind is right, you can live however. So these false teachers are living in sexual immorality. They're living in greed. They're living in however, whatever their instincts tell them to do. Some of them are even living in religious ways. They're, they're following the law. They're saying, you know, you have to do all of these requirements in order to be accepted. And so when, the, when Jude is writing to the church, he's saying, watch their lives. Watch what is being produced in their lives. It's not just what we say. It's not just what we believe. It's how we live out our lives. I'd encourage you to go home. Those of us that are on social media, I'd encourage us to scroll through our, our last several posts on social media. And see whether the, our posts are more uh, about hope, more about love, more about what God is doing in our world, or more about everything that's wrong, or everyone that's wrong, or you know all of the things that we need to point out. Because what Jude is saying is, I want you to come to a place where, yes, these things matter, but don't be so overwhelmed by it that that's all you focus on. So... In our society today, there are people that will say, yeah, God's forgiving, God's merciful, and yet they won't accept his laws. They won't accept his standards. James says, be watchful of those people. Be careful of those people. He never tells us, hey, you've got to go point out those people that they're wrong. He's saying, you keep an eye on them. Don't follow in the path that they're leading, but be careful how we correct it, and we'll get to how we correct it here in just a second. So... Verses 5 through 7, we're not going to take time to read these, but basically what Jude does is he gives us three examples, three things. He gives us Israel in the wilderness, he gives us angels who have fallen, and he gives us Sodom and Gomorrah. And he gives us these three examples because the Israelites, if you remember, it was all about what they needed. They grumbled and complained when they didn't have enough water. They grumbled and complained when they didn't have the right kind of food. They grumbled and complained whenever their daily lives didn't meet their expectations. They were self-gratifying, self-serving, selfish. That's the example he's trying to point out. The fallen angels rebelled against authority. The scripture teaches that God is the authority, and God sets up all human governments as authority. In fact, in the time of Nero, when Nero was actually persecuting the Christians, he would dip them in wax and he would light them on fire to light his gardens. Peter says, honor the emperor. 
huh. So to my knowledge, no president of the United States has ever gone that far, so I believe we can still honor them. Does that mean we have to agree with all of their policies? No, especially if their policies disagree with the word. But we can be respectful, honoring, as we point those things out to others, and even as we make our voice heard about our disagreements. So the fallen angels, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot of times, we think every time we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think about homosexuality in the church world. That's what Sodom and Gomorrah is always a reference to in our mindset. Interestingly, Sodom and Gomorrah in the prophets and the New Testament writings are referenced 20 times in the Bible. This is the only time that sexual immorality is tied to it. So I'm not going to deny that there's sexual immorality going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. But the problem of Sodom and Gomorrah was they were condemned for pride. They were condemned for their wealth and failing to care for the needy. They were condemned for a lack of hospitality. They were condemned for other things that led them down a path where it was all about gratification. Whatever I want, whatever I need, whatever my needs are. And it led them into sexual immorality. So yes, the Bible condemns that sexual immorality that's taking place in, in Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's not the root. That's just the, the fruit of what's going on in their lives. And so Jude references them because of that immorality, because these false teachers are saying, eh, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter, you know, married, not married. You can, you know, you can have sex with anybody you want because it just doesn't matter. It's just your flesh. Because it doesn't matter. Well, that's a false teaching because in the scripture, we're told to put to death the desires of our flesh when they don't match what the nature is God has given us in Christ Jesus. So it does matter what we do with our bodies. We offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice that pleases and honors him. So then Jane, or Jude, Jude goes on in verse 8, in the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings, on angels. Verse 9, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him or slander him, for he said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, I don't know if you've ever searched the Bible to find this whole story about um, the archangel Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses, uh, but you won't find it. You'll find that in the book of Enoch. Um, there are many books in Jewish history, Jewish writing, that are called the Apocrypha. And the apocryphal books, basically, are these added writings of Jewish tradition and Jewish history. And Jude is lock, stock, full of references to the book of Enoch and to some of these other writings. And sometimes we, we make the phrase, well, all we need is the Bible. Um, and I will not tell you that these other writings should be on the same plane as this book, but these other writings can help us understand this book. And the very fact that Jude himself references it over five or six times could tell us that we could learn from those books. And so that's something we've talked about as we've gone through this series. Verse 11, woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Again, Cain, that self-seeking, self-gratification, 
Balaam's error was all about wealth and pride and greed. Um, in fact, the apocryphal writings will tell us that Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, and he couldn't. That's found in the book of Numbers. But then all of a sudden, in the next chapter, we're told the Moabite women come in and seduce the people of Israel into sexual immorality. Well, the apocryphal writings that he's referencing says that Balaam actually taught them to do that. And so we don't know that, but that's what Jude is referencing. So the Jews he's writing to would have that understanding. And then Korah's rebellion, again, is that rebellion against the authority structure that God has set up. Korah decided to rebel against Moses and said, aren't we all God's people? Shouldn't we all? There should be no authority. We should all be on the same plane. So verse 12, these people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. If you remember in the book of Corinthians, where the apostle Paul is talking about these people that uh, are coming to their love feast, their their basically their communion celebrations, but they're being selfish. They're being greedy. They're, they're not waiting for the, the working class to come. They're eating all the good food. And then when the working class shows up late, oh, there's nothing left for you. Oh, uh, my bad. And Paul actually uses his harshest language from Corinthians towards that. I mean, he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about all kinds of greed. He talks about all kinds of stuff that's going on in Corinth. But his strongest language is in the mistreatment of others, the lack of hospitality. And we, we sometimes look at that and we're like, well, you know, sexual immorality, that's a big deal. But, uh, you know, hospitality, not being hospitable to people or not just being kind, not just showing mercy, that's not as, as big of a deal. And yet for some reason, it's a big deal to God. And Jude goes on to say, these people are clouds without rain. In other words, they make bold promises, but their lives don't match it. They're blown along by the wind. They keep shifting with whatever feels good or whatever benefits me the most in the moment. Autumn trees without fruit, uprooted, twice dead. They don't stand firm. They're not bearing fruit. Verse 13, they're wild waves of the, the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved. Then we're going to skip verses 14 and 15. He goes back to the prophecy of Enoch. And so we're going to skip that and go right to verse 16. This is a verse that's just going to bless your socks off. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and they flatter others for their own advantage. This sin is rampant in the American church. We tend to grumble and complain a lot. We tend to look at the faults in lots of other people's lives, but yet boast about how much better we're acting or thinking or writing. And that's a, that's a sign of a false teacher. You'll be like, oh, Pastor Tom, I'm not a false teacher. I believe all the 16 fundamental truths of the assemblies of God. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what does your life say? What's the fruit of your life? What's the character that's coming out of us? And this doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but as Peter encouraged us, this should be increasing in our lives. Kindness, goodness, faith, self-control ought to be things that increase. And so verse 17, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, 
There'll be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Verse 19, these are the people who divide you, who follow their natural instincts and don't have the spirit. So again, he's bringing them back. He's about to tell them how to respond. And how to respond is pretty short. It's actually really just a few verses, like three. But he's reminding them, God's got this under control. Don't feel like you have to go around and correct every single false teacher that's wrong. Here's what you're going to do. Ready? Verse 20. Here's what we're going to do. Ready? Here we go. Dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. He starts with me and you. How do I, how do I make sure that the false teachers are being dealt with, that I don't fall into it? Well, you build up your faith. You pray. You get in the word. You fellowship with other believers. You find accountability. You, you pray in the spirit. We talked about this last week. What does that mean? I grow in my understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works in my life. We build up our faith. If you remember the words of Jesus, he told a story called the wheat and the tares, a parable of the wheat and the weeds. And he said that the wheat and the weeds are going to grow together. The believers and the false teachers. And the, the disciples are thinking, we've got to go pull up the weeds. We've got to go point out all the false teachers. We've got to go get them out of the church. And Jesus said, if you do that, you're also going to pull up some of the good. Because you might think someone's a false teacher, and I might be working in their life in a way that you don't see yet. And so we can't go uprooting everything that we think is false. What Jude is saying is, you need to start making sure that you're living in the truth. When we want to recognize the counterfeit $100 bills, you don't study all the counterfeits that are out there. Because a new one is going to pop up every day to replace one of the ones that's been exposed. You study the truth. You study the real bill. Because when you see the real bill and you know the real bill well enough, you're going to recognize a counterfeit when it comes. Jude's saying, if you want to make sure you don't fall prey to being a false teacher, if you want to make sure that your church doesn't fall prey to false teachers, make sure you're living in the truth. Build up your faith. You can't just say a prayer one time and then just live however you want to live. You've got to lean into faith. You've got to build yourself up. You've got to eat the word. You've got to devour the word. You've got to meditate on the word. You've got to pray in the spirit. And I know that maybe some of us think, well, you know, I don't know about this praying in the spirit thing. I don't know about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 says, do not be ignorant about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, about spiritual things. So if you don't believe it or you don't agree with it, I would say make sure you get in the book and you study it and you pray and you say, God, help me understand this. Because in the last days, this is not a time for you and I to have a dull spirit. If we think, well, you know, I, anybody can read the Bible. It's right there in black and white. Okay, I, I can read it. I can see that person over there is not living the way they should. And uh, I'll just, they're a false teacher. And that's what a lot of the American church is trying to do. And what we're trying to do is lazy. We're not leaning into who God is. We're not leaning into mercy. Because look at what he says in verse 22. The next thing, or verse 21, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Remember, 
What is it in our lives that keeps us from judgment? God's mercy, not our own ability to follow him. Verse 22, great advice here from, from Jude. Be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. That word doubt can mean waver, weigh, hesitate, see differently, contend, or criticize. So some of the people that Jude is asking us to have mercy on are people who maybe are being critical of the church, being critical of God's word. There are people that we would look at and say, you're sinning, you're going against God's word. And instead of handling them in a way that's actually going to bring them into the kingdom, we use this book as a weapon to just slice them up. To put, am I saying we should never correct people? No, we should correct people. But let's make sure that we're correcting people that we're in relationship with. Let's make sure that we're correcting people that we'd actually step in front of a moving train for. Okay, because what's happening in the church world today is we're fighting against people that are clearly false teachers, but we're not being merciful about it. We're doing it with a sense of arrogance and pride that we know we're right because anybody could do it. I mean, anybody could, you know, read this and it's, it's right there in black and white. But have you, have you prayed into it? Have you meditated on it? Have you, like, prayed in the spirit and allowed God to work out his salvation more fully in your life? When Jesus said, when you correct your brother, before you go to your brother and you correct the speck that you see in your eye, make sure you're regularly dealing with the log in your own eye. What Jesus is saying is he's, he's not saying never correct someone because that wouldn't be love to never correct someone that's wrong. But he's saying if you get into correction mode, you're going to come to a place where you forget the mercy of God and you forget all that you've been forgiven of and you forget that God is trying to work out some stuff in your life too. So don't get so overwhelmed by that guy over there with the speck. Make sure you're regularly building up your faith, praying in the spirit. You're dealing with the log that's in your eye. So when you go to correct that person, you do it in a way that they're able to receive it. Jude goes on in verse 23, save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is what I want you to understand. Um, because you could listen to me today and think we're never supposed to speak up. We're never supposed to point out sin. We're never supposed to, you know, uh, stand up for the righteousness of God. That's not what I'm implying at all. There is a time to speak up. But I feel like the church has decided to speak first and live second. We're not very hospitable to our neighbors. We're not very kind and gracious to those who are in the fire. What does that mean? That means that person that you want to label as a false teacher or that person that you think is the enemy of the church is in the fire. Meaning if God comes today to judge, they're lost for eternity. And if that doesn't stay in the forefront of our mind, we have to be sure that when we correct them, we're actually pulling them from the fire, not holding them in the fire. We don't want judgment. We want mercy for those people. But it has to be mercy mixed with fear. Because we can't come to a place where we just compromise, where we call evil good. Oh, yeah, let's just... Okay, you want to call it that? I mean, God's word clearly calls that evil, but we'll call it good today. 
we can't live that way either. So how do we live in this balance of mercy mixed with fear? Well, we don't do it in our own strength. We do it by building ourselves up in our holy faith, praying in the spirit. And that's one thing the church doesn't like to lean into. When we have um, events where we offer food and, and things, and churches, by and large, this is the truth here in America. If you do an event where you give away free food or you have some type of, of band or activity, man, the place will be packed. When you have a Sunday morning worship service where, I mean, who doesn't love to worship? Man, it's so, it makes me feel so good. And, oh, man, I feel I have get goosebumps. I mean, the place will be packed. But when we say, hey, let's meet together and really dig in. Let's begin to fast and pray and really, well, I got a lot going on. I, I, don't, I don't got time. Or I, I am, and prayer seems to get relegated to the back burner. But hey, I mean, I can read the Bible and see clearly here in black and white. So we don't offer mercy mixed with fear. We just offer the fear. We just offer the pride. We just offer the black and white. This is how it is. You're sinning, and you're fighting against God, and God's going to judge you. Don't forget, God offered you mercy before the foundation of the earth, and you were in no different boat than they were. And that's what he wants to put in our hearts. So Jude isn't saying, don't ever speak up against false teachers. Jude is saying, be careful that you offer mercy mixed with fear. Be aware of the false teachers that are in the church. Be aware of the people that try to slip in and try to act all humble and all good and try to live, but they live for themselves. And show them mercy. Show them a mercy mixed with fear. Live a type of lifestyle that's going to help them see the truth of God's word. Over and over, Jude reminds us, God is sovereign. God is in control. False teachers are going to come. Don't overreact to it. Don't be apathetic to it. Be aware that they're there. Don't get cynical. Don't get angry. But here's what you and I need to do. We need to be intentional. We need to be sober. We need to build up our faith. Don't live the Christian life that lets Jesus be an add-on to your life. Where I've, I've said a prayer, Jesus has forgiven my sins, but I basically live for myself. No, know your calling. Know what he's put you on this earth for as a son or daughter of God to represent him in this life. Pray in the spirit. Pray in the spirit when you drive around town. Pray in the spirit on your way to work. Pray in the spirit when you're at work and that, that co-worker's frustrating you, that job that you're working on is frustrating you. Be merciful. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Stay away from the fault finding, the grumbling, the complaining, the nitpicking. And then let's show mercy mixed with fear. Here's the thing. I think we live in unprecedented times. We knew that these times were coming on the earth, but somehow in 2020, they caught us off guard. Let's just admit they caught us off guard, all of us. Some of us are still trying to go back to 2019. I don't think we're going back to 2019. But I think God is fully aware of 2020, and he's leading us into 2021, and he's ready for it. We need to show a mercy mixed with fear in our culture right now. And the only way you and I are going to be able to do that is if we dig in, become more intentional about building our faith, praying in the spirit, and then showing that mercy mixed with fear. And that's a tough, tough balance to find. And we're not going to find it without him. 
So as we close today, that's what my prayer is going to be for you. My prayer is going to be for us, is that we come to that place where that becomes who we are as a church body. And so I want to invite you to stand with me as we get ready to close, whether you're in the room, whether you're at home, I want to pray that blessing over you. I want to encourage you, if you're here today and you have never made a commitment that I've talked about today to surrender your life to, to Christ fully the way I've described it, I want to visit with you after service today if that's something you want to do. And I'm going to encourage you just to meet me over here. It won't take more than a few seconds, a few minutes to begin to just share with you. And I've got a gift I want to give you as a way to help you through that process. And so for those of you watching online, you can put that in the chat or you can uh, send a message and uh, we'll communicate with you that way as well. And so, Father, I just say thank you today for the mercy that you've given to us. God, I pray that you would help us to live our lives the way Paul describes in Romans, in view of your mercy, remembering the mercy that you've showed to each and every one of us, remembering that you've never treated us as our sins deserve. And so, God, as we come to you and we receive that mercy, we receive that grace, we receive the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, God, help us to live up to that calling that you've given us as sons and daughters. Help us, not in just the big things, God, not just in the sexual immorality, not just in the, the lying or the cheating or the, the obvious sins in our lives, but God, even in the grumbling, even in the complaining, even in the, the fault-finding, the nitpicking, God, the unforgiveness, the lack of mercy. God, help us to live up to our calling, to imitate you, to be merciful as you are merciful, to be compassionate, to be slow to anger, abounding in love. God, to represent you everywhere we go. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for grace upon the members of Restoration Church today. God, give us grace to build ourselves up in our faith. Give us grace, God, to pray regularly in the Spirit, to grow in our intimacy with the Spirit. God, that the fruit of our lives would be produced through the connection that we have with you, not just in our own strength, not just in our own religious lists, but, God, that it would come from you. So, Holy Spirit, give us grace to show mercy mixed with fear. Give us grace to have mercy on those that doubt, those that criticize, God, those that condemn. Give us mercy, God, to snatch people from the fire. God, that today if you return, they would face judgment. Holy Spirit, grip us with this sober moment, the reality that there are millions right now in this nation that are lost. God, help us not to try to just hold on to a way of life that's going to keep us comfortable for the next 30 years, should you tarry. But God, help us to be willing to show the type of mercy, God, that's going to snatch them from the fire, that's going to bring them into the kingdom. Holy Spirit, show us how to correct. Show us how to do it in a way where we deal with the log that's in our eye so that we can see clearly to remove the speck that's in someone else's. God, we recognize that there's a false teaching that's creeping its way into the American church. We want to stand against it. Help us to know how to do that the way that Jude describes in this short book. So Holy Spirit, give us grace. Holy Spirit, over this body today, I pray your blessing. 
that you would bless them and keep them, that you would cause your face to shine on them. God, that you lift your countenance upon them and give them peace. Holy Spirit, be gracious to us so that we in turn can be gracious to others. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, God bless you as you go. Our hosts are going to come and